At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. My name is Stuart Thompson and I'm a website editor at the paper. I'll be filling in for the beloved Brent Whitmire today. I'm here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday, December 4th. This week, while we were basking in the reflected glory of the Eskimos' Grey Cup victory, we saw mounting protests against the NDP government's farm safety bill and a proposal from the Wild Rose Party that would allow voters to depose their MLA. Federally, we also got fresh details from the Liberals on how they plan to deal with that pesky Senate. As always, on the press gallery, we promise to respect your way of life. (laughs) Here in the studio, before they're officially on the clock, we have city columnist Paula Simons graciously coming in on our holidays. Good morning, Stuart Thompson. Provincial politics reporter Jody Cinema. Hello. And general assignment reporter and bona fide Alberta farm girl Paige Parsons. Hello. Hey guys. So before we start, we have a little scene setter here from the Bill 6 protest. This is from journal photographer Ryan Jackson. <laughs> and that was an adorable turkey at the end there. Uh, and, and that's that's not a sound effect. That is an actual, real, live <laughs> turkey that Ryan Jackson uh, captured on audio and video at uh, Thursday's rally. And that wild rose Derek Hildebrandt tried to Hildebrandt tried to catch yesterday. Did he get it? I do not think he got it. <laughs> <laughs> Turkeys are mean if provoked. You yeah, know? They I mean, are. they're they're you know straight out of the Jurassic Park. So. <laughs> Uh, So yesterday, as you heard, there were more than 1,000 farmers and ranchers on the legislature grounds protesting Bill 6. They're also mean when provoked. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jody, can you give us a sense of why they're so upset with this bill? There are several reasons. I think one of the reasons that they're saying is that they weren't consulted by the Alberta government. So the Alberta government rolled out this new bill uh, that will change several workplace acts. Um, And farmers said the government didn't come to them first. So I think the farmers consulted with some of the big beef producers, some of the big farming groups, but it didn't get necessarily get down to all the family farms out there. The second thing that people are really concerned about is about those family farms. So kids who go out and collect eggs, they go out and help their dads bring in the cattle, things like that. They're afraid that if there are new safety rules that come in that have yet to be drafted, that those kids won't be able to go out and do that. So it's it's the family farm that they are saying it's a way of life, it's not a workplace, and they're really scared that their their children won't be able to learn learn what needs to be done on the farm. That's the the essential essential problem. Well, we've had just recently in Alberta two very high profile tragedies and anybody can weigh in on this because I think it's something we're all aware of, but how do they how do they want to find a balance between stopping things like that from happening and having kids grow up on a farm and be involved in a farm? I think the issue with these kinds of accidents, there was the one down, I think, in the Red Deer area where the three young girls basically drowned in a truckload of canola. I, I think 
And then there was this other issue of a young farm boy who was driving a forklift. He was driving a forklift along the side of the highway. The forklift rolled and he was killed. I think some of the problems that some of these farmers are saying is we're not sure if this legislation would have prevented those particular deaths. Uh, those workers, sorry, those children weren't farm workers. Uh, they, and this particular legislation is trying to get compensation, workers' compensation and protection for farm workers on farms, people who are paid, not the children. Uh, and I think that's, that's part of the issue that the farmers have with it. They're not sure that this legislation is going to come in and actually protect their kids. They say accidents still happen. And they are the ones who know the most about farm life, and they will be the ones able to sort of make sure that it's safe for their children. The problem, though, Stuart, is that this isn't just about small family farms. You have to remember that in Alberta, we have huge agribusiness that has taken over great swaths of the farming economy. Uh, the numbers show that in Alberta, 15% of the farms produce 80% of the revenues. And so these are sometimes huge operations, feedlots, hay baling factories, for lack of a better word, where workers have no safety rights and no right to unionize. And those are two of the flashpoints here. I mean, right now as it stands, um, I mean, I first wrote about this back in 2008 when a young man, a 17-year-old paid farm worker in Folair who was working on a huge hay baling operation, fell into a hay baling machine, died a really gruesome death. Occupational Health and Safety charged the operator with a bunch of uh, offenses under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, and the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench threw out the case, saying that because the hay baling was an agricultural operation, not just a farm, but an agricultural operation, that workers had no occupational health and safety protection. I wrote a couple of years later about two men who were moving a giant steel auger in city limits, but they were working on a farm operation. The auger hit an overhead power line. They were electrocuted. Occupational Health and Safety came to investigate and then turned around and went back because they had no jurisdiction even to investigate the deaths. So we have situations here in Alberta where we have agricultural industrial operations that have 50, 60, 100 employees. They have no occupational health and safety protection. They have no right to workers' compensation if they're injured on the job. and. I think that is a significant problem that needs to be addressed. And for all of the NDP's failure to communicate how this bill is going to work, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of agricultural laborers, some of them temporary foreign workers, migrants who come up from Mexico and other parts of Latin America during the summer months uh, to work on market gardens and farms here, people who have no protection. It's like the 19th century, and we are far, far behind any other jurisdiction in Canada in terms of providing protection for those workers. So I, I think it's something that has to be addressed. But and that's, that's what Premier Rachel Notley was saying yesterday, too. She used to be, uh, or she still is, I guess, a labor lawyer, and she used to help out these people in the court system, the people who were injured, family members of people who have died on the farm. And she said, we have to protect those very vulnerable workers. As Paula said, those are sometimes temporary foreign workers. Um, they're not necessarily paid very much. They need protection. So if they lose a family member on the farm, their family still needs to be taken care of. And without WCB coverage, that becomes very difficult to do. Farmers, of course, they say, look, we look after our farm workers. They are family. We love them. We want to keep them safe. So we don't necessarily need WCB coverage. A lot of these farmers, too, they have private insurance. And 
that's what a lot of people are saying. Hey, if I have private insurance, why do I have to go out and get WCB coverage? And they say that is it's far more limited and they don't want to have to be they don't want the province to dictate what kind of insurance they have. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have all these protests going on and it's bigger protests than I've seen since I think maybe the unions were protesting the PC government. Um, the government's really digging in there and to their credit, uh, it's not an easy thing to do, but ministers have been going down to these rallies and you can see them getting screamed at on television every night. Um, can the government ride this out? Do you think that's politically the best thing to do? Or do you think that maybe um, this is a, a bad, just a bad political play for them? You know, it's we've talked about this on other editions of the podcast. It's not like there are lots and lots and lots of NDP votes in rural southern Alberta. I mean, lots of these farmers are coming from parts of the province that voted solidly Wild Rose in the last provincial election, and the NDP don't have any hopes of of winning seats in those ridings. So in some ways, you could argue from a utilitarian point of view that uh, goring the farmer's oxen doesn't hurt the NDP, but I think it's really bad optics for everybody because you see those, you know, you see the very cute farm kids and their cute goats and their cute... You know, turkeys. the cute, well, the turkeys are not cute. Um, <laughs> you know, it it looks bad on a government that promised to govern differently, to listen to people, to you know, to be open to conversation. And I I can't help thinking that it was just this time last year that Jim Prentice, you know, impaled himself on Bill Ten, and you know, the Notley and government. He was out of the country too at that time. Yeah, you know, the Notley government promised that they would listen to people, that they would be the people's government. And sure, I mean, you can say that, you know, some of this protest is being fomented by giant multinational agribusiness. You know, you don't see the giant multinational agribusiness people out there. They're, you know, they've whipped up uh, ordinary folk to come out and protest. Uh, Maybe there aren't a lot of hearts and minds for the NDP to win among the people who are protesting outside the legislature. It doesn't matter because they look like bullies, even if... I happen to agree with the core of, of their legislation. There are seats to lose, though. I talked to a farmer up in Athabasca, and they are represented by an NDP MLA. And he said a lot of people were, they decided they needed something new. They went against PCs, they went against the Wild Rose. And he said they need to listen to us. He said there's no way people up there again are going to vote for NDP. So mm-hmm. they, that, I mean, there are ridings like that out there. I know I spoke with uh, Shay Anderson yesterday. He's the MLA for the Leduc area. He came out and was speaking with some of the, the crowd on the edge. Uh, and he said once he talks to the farmers and explains the situation with the legislation that they start to understand. I'm not so sure. I'm <laughs> definitely not hearing from farmers who say, oh, okay, I understand this legislation now. I'm, I'm okay to go with it. Uh, I'm not certain about that. It's going to take a long time to talk to each one of them individually, too. <laughs> uh, well, Paige, you grew up on a farm south of Edmonton, uh, so you might have an idea of where these farmers are coming from. Do you think they're right when they say the NDP doesn't really understand their way of life? I think to a point they might be, and I think obviously it's it's gotten a little bit overblown and, dare I say, hysterical. I think I saw some signs that had the word genocide on them, which <laughs> seems like a bit overkill. Mm. Um, but... I, I called my dad yesterday to ask him about this, and I'm from one of those like increasingly rare family farms where we he it's just him, and we help him out, my brother and sister and my mom, and then once a year he hires one of his friends to help him with harvest, so it's really a pretty small operation comparatively. And he's a 
really mild-mannered, not political person at all, but he, I was surprised because he said that he did end up going to the protest in Red Deer, and he said he'd never been to any kind of political event in his life before, but he was still moved to go to this one just because, and I think that really speaks to like the lack of communication um, about this to the smaller farmers, and just really feeling like they're, they're not being listened to, and that for especially small operations, they don't have any idea what this is going to cost, and what it's going to really mean for them and if you know my mom's gonna be able to get home from work and come and pick him up from the field or if that's he's gonna need to get special insurance for that or that kind Mm -hmm. of thing but um, he said he has no issue with um, farmer safety and he said from the people that he was hearing from at the rally it's not like people are are keen to to protect their workers like Jody was talking about like they in these small communities they want it to be safer and they're okay with regulations coming in I think it's it's just um, become an issue because of the lack of communication and now people are are upset and like these aren't people that had a lot of confidence in in the NDP to begin with and now it's just really taken off more as a ideological thing than an actual problem with with the core and the intent of of the bill which is to protect farm workers which I don't think a lot of farmers actually have an issue with. Would, Would you say there's something specifically in the bill that he's opposed to or is it just the whole process and the idea that they're not listening to what he has to say? Um, he's not. He said he's not really opposed to the bill. He's just right. opposed to the fact, the lack of consultation that that came ahead of it, and that they're they don't know what the details will be until after it's been passed. And mm-hmm. and that's the issue. So they have the overriding bill that farmers will have to buy WCB insurance for their employees. Uh, employees will be able to say no to unsafe work. But the details of the occupational health and safety regulations, that's to come after. So those are all the little niggly details that farmers will have to follow, the safety rules. So getting harnesses to perhaps climb up on granaries, setting an age limit for kids driving tractors, all those kinds of things still have to be worked out. And that's what farm families have a mistrust of the NDP government now because they say, look, we're going to pass this entire bill. And then what? Do we do we trust the NDP government to come up with common sense rules that make sense on our farms you know the other issue here too is is the idea that farm workers can unionize Mm -hmm. because it's one thing if you're saying it's all about health and safety uh where the ndp have an optics problem again is by putting the right to unionize in the bill it allows people to say well this is just about wanting to give more power to unions and i can imagine that for lots of smaller operators the idea you know i mean Unions only make sense on really large operations, and you can see why that's a cultural disconnect as well. You know, what makes sense in an urban environment and what makes sense in a rural one. So I I don't think we can underline enough, and I want to stress this because I've been advocating in my columns for improved uh, farm safety regulation for for more than a decade now. I am not opposed to to the motivation behind the NDP bill. But oh my goodness, they need to go over the Christmas holidays and have a long, long workshop about communications. And uh, you know, and, and, Not and just communications, ha- though. I mean, there are all sorts of documents that are being, you know, that the NDP or their bureaucrats created that have very contradictory information yes. in them. Mm-hmm. They're extremely difficult to understand. There's a document out there that was dated October. It looks like it came from you know WCB uh, people who said that you would have to get coverage for paid and unpaid workers. And the government insists that it was never for unpaid workers. Well, when you see this document in hard form that 
it was very different at the beginning, you really get a sense that something went wrong here that we have, and I think that's really what farmers really don't trust. I think they've rushed this. I don't think they've thought through how they're going to present it to people. I mean, you have to get buy-in. And something, I mean, this is the thing that I don't understand. Brian Mason and Rachel Notley sat in the legislature and watched Ed Stelmack, Ed Stelmack, who was an honest-to-God farmer, you know, try to do farm safety reform, try to do land management reform. And they watched Ed Stelmack got, get eaten up by angry rural people uh, who protested. And and Stelmack had all the, I don't know, you can't call it street cred if you're a farmer. All, all <laughs> Field the, cred. All, yeah, all, all, all the quarter section cred that you could ask for. Uh, did Were they asleep? Did they learn nothing to understand that this is a community of people who are very suspicious of big government initiatives telling them what to do? Uh, and you not know, just suspicious of that, but I think suspicious of government employees coming onto their farm and telling them what is safe and unsafe. So those inspectors coming on, these are fiercely independent people. They, they, who wants somebody coming onto their to their yard? Uh, I, I think they have a real question about government employees knowing what's best on the farms with their granaries, with their cattle, with their pigs. I was one. I was looking. I think it might have been Graham Thompson's column. He was talking about how the government has already started blaming, as you were saying earlier, Jody civil servants for this. Oh, and, and that was bad. To throw your staff <laughs> under the bus, I mean, that was that was bad form. And anyone who's a fan of British political satire knows when they start blaming a rogue civil servant, that means the government's in trouble about something. Uh, and I was wondering if maybe this could, maybe a pause could be the best thing for the NDP. And as you said, Paula, go home for the holidays and think about this a little bit. You know, part of me, I, I have to say, I was sort of astonished when Rachel Notley came back from Paris said, nope, we're going to do this because, you know, how many, and let, let us not underplay this. I mean, 25 people died in farm-related accidents in Alberta last year, and that's not atypical. I mean, the standard over the last 10 years is 18 to 25 farm deaths a year and thousands more people, you know, hospitalized with a variety of, of injuries. You know, so she made a very impassioned speech yesterday that she's not going to let this go for the sake of all the people who could end up in the hospital between January and April while they're trying to figure things out and that they'll you know they'll pass the bill and then they'll work out everything else afterwards but that's asking for a that's asking for a lot of public trust and a blank check mm -hmm. and uh, you know this is still a little baby government but okay guys um i can only say well they're just you know they're just learning how to do this for so long because we gave them the keys um and you know if 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 we're gonna say kids can't drive uh combines uh, little baby governments oughtn't perhaps to drive uh, legislative agendas like this before they know how to handle them. Somebody emailed <laughs> that me. That was a very tortured metaphor. <laughs> we somebody, got there in the end. <laughs> somebody emailed me an interesting question uh, last night. They said, of those 25 people who died on farm accidents here in Alberta, how many were paid workers? It's an interesting question. How many were paid? How many were kids? How many were family? Uh, would this legislation protect them? I, I had the, I don't know, misfortune of having to cover the funeral of those three little girls that died um, mm -hmm. here recently. And it's it's just horrible. And as someone who came from a farm and has heard of different things like this happening growing up, it's it's just, it's devastating. And it's something that if the government can step in and do something to protect kids, I think that would be a great thing, but again, those those little girls, they were playing, they weren't working, and so, I don't know, I think, yeah, just, they need to figure out exactly what they're going to do, and 
be really clear and communicate that because I think just coming and trying to throw this bill on and figuring it all out later it's not really working and I know at the rally in Red Deer my dad he went and he couldn't get in because it was so busy and so they sent out a, a different MLA and he didn't remember who it was but um, she'd come out and she was taking their questions and to be fair to them it looks like the the questions are very aggressive but he said that it was he was a little bit disappointed because the MLA didn't seem to know she didn't seem to be able to answer them herself and she was she was getting people correcting her from over her shoulder mm. and adding things and it just seemed like yeah taking some time over Christmas to to get it straightened out and really know what they're what they're going to do and and know how to communicate that more clearly would maybe be a good good step. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, in other news, the Wild Rose Party proposed recall legislation, which would allow voters to force a by-election in their riding. The party says it's to make sure MLAs are, quote, truly accountable to their constituents. But aren't elections doing that job, though? Do we really need this? No. It, I hate recall. I hate recall uh, uh, legislation everywhere. I mean, unless somebody has been so guilty of malfeasance. But, you know, a 20% threshold? I mean, that, that's and absurd. They, and the Wild Rose did not set parameters about when or how or why people would be able to recall their MLA. So what happens if you just really don't like your MLA? Could you get 20% of the voters to sign up? And they said they want to to let the people out there, the public, decide how you can recall and who you can recall. But I think that it's leaving it a little bit vague. Well, especially in a province like ours where we've got so many political parties that you can win a plurality of the votes and absolutely there will be 20% of people who voted against you. I mean, uh, how many how many MLAs in the last provincial election won 80% of the vote in their ridings? I mean, to have a, tw- I, and I, I grant you, 20% on a petition is different than 20% at the polls. But the threshold is ridiculously low. I mean, also, this is the kind of legislation that only opposition parties usually ever want to pass mm-hmm. because once you're elected, I mean, I just, that's the thing. I mean, if Brian Jean thinks that the Wild Rose can form government in the next election, why would he want to saddle his own future government with this kind of poison pill? It's loopy. Be done. <laughs> okay. uh, so we'll switch to federal news now. And <laughs> I wanted to talk about Justin Trudeau's nanny, but my high minded colleagues <laughs> refused. Uh, so the Liberal Party says it will form a five-person panel to give him recommendations to fill Senate seats. Uh, this plan also has the benefit of not requiring any mucking around with the Constitution. So after all the time spent talking about Senate scandals, did Trudeau find a sweet spot here with this plan? You know, I, I think this makes a lot of sense. This is sort of what the British have done to replace the House of Lords in England. They have a, a panel set up to... a you know, to nominate people who are lordly and ladylike, I guess. Uh, the problem with Senate reform is that in order to do anything meaningful, you have to open up the Constitution, you have to get uh, national consensus, and you're never going to get a province like Quebec or a province like PEI. You know, small provinces that, that like PEI benefit hugely from the formula we have now. Quebec has at long uh, stated that it's not open to uh, to Senate reform of of the kind of radical triple E sort that Alberta has long wanted. So this is a way that you depoliticize things. You say we're not going to appoint a bunch of party hacks and bag men anymore. We're going to appoint people based on merit and based on the respect they have in their individual community. It sounds lovely. The problem is that 
who's on the committee? Exactly. That, you who's know? on that five-person panel? I'm really going to be really curious <laughs> who's going to be making these decisions. Yeah, yeah you know, because you can say, oh, we're going to take patronage out of it. Well, you're appointing the panel, aren't you, Justin? I, you know. He still gets the final say, too. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, from a parliamentary traditional perspective, um, it is the governor general who appoints senators on the advice of the prime minister. Mm -hmm. The prime minister traditionally acts, you know, it, with some kind of consultation, kind of, sort of, from people on the ground provincially, not from the premier, but from. Mm -hmm. So. So I don't know. I mean, but one can apply now. So I could apply yeah. to be a senator. Um, can you nominate anybody? <laughs> yeah, you, you, can, you can nominate anybody and you can apply. So, you know, in theory, um, you could nominate people who might otherwise, you know, never be the kind of people who would go to the right kind of cocktail parties to meet the right kind of cabinet ministers. I mean, you know, this could be a wonderful populist way that we the people could say, you know, who's really valuable in our community? This person who does all kinds of fabulous volunteer work and has been, you know, a Reeve and who has, you know, been on the, the local school board and they'd be an amazing senator, uh, you know, and they're the kind of person who is never going to be on the prime minister's Christmas card list. What so, do you think, Stuart? Uh, well, it r <laughs> remains to be seen, I think. This is one of those things where you think, well, this panel makes a lot of sense because then you have some buffer between you and any scandal that happens, which as much as we want to say this is about appointments and about working in the Senate, I think it's mainly about avoiding the kind of scandals that just dragged Stephen Harper down for three years or whatever it was. So it's a good buffer, I think, but uh, it remains to be seen if it'll appoint good people to the job. I want to know what Paige thinks since we brought her in here to talk about, to talk about more yeah. than jerkies. Paige didn't agree to this. <laughs> I, don't, I, think it's, I think it's really intriguing to try to get people um, who aren't in the normal Ottawa bubble or, or regular political scene into the Senate. And I or think the PEI bubble. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, yeah, it's an exciting way to bring in people from rural Canada, from northern Canada, bring in people who are maybe representing, instead of a political party, um, a, a different group, like a a religious, well, I don't know, religious group, or like a, a First Nations person or an Inuit person or, I don't know, I think it's just, it's a good opportunity for diversity mm -hmm. in the Senate. I think it'll remain to be seen if it actually turns out that way. And, you know, with a, with a little nod to Emily Murphy and Nellie McClung and the rest of the Famous Five, um, when they fought the person's case, they weren't just arguing for women to be persons, they were arguing uh, that if as long as we're appointing people to the Senate, it should be 50-50 based on gender. And many, 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 many years after the person's case, we're still nowhere near gender parity. Uh, it's time for good stuff from the gallery. Each week we share something we've enjoyed often, but not always with a political connection. Paula? I'm going to recommend, last, last, last week I told everybody to go look at the Magna Carta. This week I'm <laughs> going to tell everybody to go and see Spotlight, which is the uh, new film about uh, investigative reporters from the Boston Globe who uncovered uh, the extent of pedophilia in the Catholic uh, Archdiocese of Boston and the extent to which the cardinal at the time, Cardinal Law, covered up you know, the fact that they had almost a hundred priests who'd been implicated in uh, child sex abuse scandals. I think you know, that's a gripping story for anyone, but for journalists, this is such a true-to-life movie about what it's like to be an investigative reporter, which is not nearly as exciting as it is in, you know, in popular culture, but this movie actually manages to make, you know, spreadsheets and microfiche 
the stuff of actual investigative reporting kind of exciting. And if you've ever known what it's like, wondered what it's like to spend time with Karen Cleese and Keith Gerine and Ryan Cormier, you could just see this movie. And it's <laughs> it's just like spending time with Karen Cleese and Keith Gerine and Ryan Cormier. Well, my wife was telling me that all the stars were mortified. They had to dress like actual journalists in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jody, I am going to recommend a piece. Uh, it ran in Vogue. I saw it on Long Read. Uh, it's called What It Feels Like to Cover Gun Violence in America. It's by Jennifer Mashia. Uh, and she is a reporter for an interesting online publication called The Trace. And it is dedicated to gun violence and policy. And she talks about her personal experience of reporting on various gun massacres across the states. Uh, but how she found out when she was 22 years old that her father uh, had a very seedy past and he had killed several people uh, when she was a child as well. So she talked about just stats, like 92 people in the States die from gun violence every day approximately. Um, it's just a really interesting read on on how guns and violence affects America every day. Paige? Um, I chose The Return of Syphilis by Naomi Sharp, and it's in The Atlantic. I picked it because it's. I think it's a really interesting piece because especially this week with World AIDS Day, I was kind of looking around because I looking for stuff about AIDS and HIV, but this piece is interesting because it kind of suggests that um, with the with the great treatments that we have for HIV and AIDS now, that might be one of the reasons that has led to um, these really surprising increase, this really surprising increase in uh, syphilis in the United States, which is a, and even though we are able to cure it now, syphilis is such a interesting history, and, and when it was wreaking havoc in centuries past, it had so much um, cultural weight and it shows up a lot in literature and in art and I think it's just really interesting that this horrible disease but very interesting colorful disease is making making a comeback and and she looks at some of the reasons why well and it's interesting because here in Alberta it's been a persistent problem for about five or six years now so I think that's really timely uh, my good stuff from the gallery this week comes from vox.com and it's provocatively titled Alberta's new carbon tax isn't rev revenue neutral and that's the best thing about it Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or in the Edmonton Journal's SoundCloud feed. The show pops up most Friday afternoons and can be retrieved via iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and the Edmonton Journal website. We're all on Twitter. You should also check out the Journal's Facebook page. Thank you, Paula, Jody, and Paige for joining me in the newsroom studio. That's all for now from the Press Gallery. Thanks for listening.